my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your confidant Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode will cover vampire lovers, man flies, and wax corpses. Mosey into this teleporter with me so we may become one and chit-chat about some horror. What could go wrong? Number one, Only Lovers Left Alive, 2013, directed by Jim Jarmusch. Two vampire lovers are separated. Adam is in Detroit and Eve is in Tangier. Another vampire named Marlo also lives in Tangier and is friends with Eve. Adam has a human friend named Ian that helps him get things. Adam is depressed, so Eve goes to visit him. They are happy until Eve's sister Ava shows up, kills Ian, and wrecks Adam's stuff. Adam and Eve throw Ian's body in some acid and flee to Tangier. They go to see Marlo, who ate some bad blood, and dies in front of them. Adam and Eve are starving and have no good blood supply, so they jump a young couple. Ava, Adam, and Eve are the killers. You don't technically see Adam and Eve kill the couple, but it's implied. They say they're going to turn the couple into vampires, but Adam and Eve are still technically killing them. Ava is the true killer and a garbage vampire. Her character didn't make a lot of sense to me. She acts like a dumb teenager even though she's hundreds of years old. I guess if vampires existed, so would stupid vampires? Only Lovers Left Alive is my first taste of Jim Jarmusch's work. A trailer for his new zombie movie, The Dead Don't Die, came out recently, which led to my friend Sarah recommending I watch his vampire movie, Only Lovers Left Alive. While watching the movie, I felt it dragged a bit in parts, but I heavily enjoyed the weird vampire slice of life. Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston are perfect as oddball vampires. I wouldn't bat an eye if you told me those two were actually vampires. I especially love the way Tilda Swinton looked with her crazy hair. It's big and almost looks like a mane. Anton Yelchin played Ian. I really liked Anton Yelchin, but realized he mostly played the same character in everything. I still enjoy seeing him. Ava is played by Mia Wasikowska. She was fine as the forever teenage jerk. Wasikowska and Hiddleston also worked together in Crimson Peak. I've never covered it on the podcast, so if you're wondering, I highly recommend Crimson Peak. It's a gothic romance film with a tiny bit of horror sprinkled in. Technically, Only Lovers Left Alive probably shouldn't be considered a horror movie. It's a slice-of-life film that happens to include vampires. Nothing horrific really happens. Sure, it sucks that Ian has all his blood drained out. 
but you see that coming from a mile away. As soon as Ian was introduced, I knew he wouldn't make it to the end of the movie for some reason or another. There's no suspense surrounding his death. As soon as you see Ian out with the vampires, you know Ava is going to kill him. Maybe I shouldn't be placing all the blame on Ava. Adam knows Ava is dumb and hates her. Why would he bring Ian around when he knows Ava has a high chance of murdering the poor human? Adam even leaves Ian alone with Ava. The gore for Ian's death is lame. It consists of the usual vampire bite marks. Luckily, the disposal of his body is a fun time. There's a random pool of acid in an abandoned parking garage. Adam and Eve toss Ian's corpse into the acid. His flesh starts to melt, which exposes his skeleton. This looks really cool. On the flip side, this brings me to something else in the movie that didn't look great. Eve FaceTimes Adam from an iPhone. Adam doesn't have an iPhone, so he uses a bunch of electronic wizardry to make Eve appear on an old TV. This looks weird, but I can suspend my disbelief. The problem with the FaceTiming is how Adam looks on Eve's iPhone. It looks painfully fake. How do you mess up that part? Making Adam look believable on the iPhone should be the easy part. Besides the iPhone issues and random electronic sounds being added where they weren't needed, like when a doctor Adam buys blood from is using a computer, the visuals and sound design are strong throughout. I especially like the funeral metal score. Adam is a musician who's writing new music, so his gloomy doom metal is constantly played, which perfectly sets the tone of the film. There are a lot of interesting shots also. The visuals were on point. Only Lovers Left Alive is a fun slice of life movie starring vampires. It's a quirky delight. If you're only looking for straight up horror, this isn't the movie you're looking for. If you like vampires, definitely check this out. Number 2, Book of Monsters, 2018, directed by Stuart Spark. A girl named Sophie sees a monster chop up her mom. Years later, Sophie is turning 18. Her friend invites a bunch of people over to her house. A strange woman shows up and uses Sophie's mom's old book to complete a virgin sacrifice and summon monsters. A bunch of people die. Sophie and her friends fight the monsters and find out Sophie's mom was a monster hunter. All the monsters are dispatched, including the woman who was the monster that killed Sophie's mom. Monsters and the bug lady who summoned them are the killers. I was eagerly awaiting Book of Monsters arrival to video on demand. Unfortunately, the only place to stream the movie is iTunes. iTunes is a garbage platform. I know I beg you amazing listeners to rate the podcast on iTunes. For some unknown reason, iTunes is still the most important podcast hub. Leave a rating to show your love. Anyway, it was a real struggle to rent Book of Monsters on iTunes. This movie has a lot of heart and charm. It definitely deserves an A for effort. Unfortunately, it also deserves an F in sound mixing and recording. The sound in Book of Monsters is horrendously bad. It's probably the worst of any movie I've covered on the podcast. Whoever was supposed to record the dialogue totally beefed it. At times, it's literally impossible to hear the characters. I had to watch Book of Monsters with subtitles, and there were multiple parts throughout the viewing where I only knew a character said something because of them. 
Even when you can hear the characters, a lot of the time you can't make out what they are saying because of the poor mixing. The score, which I did enjoy, is way too loud in a lot of places, which drowns out the dialogue. This doesn't appear to be Stuart Sparks' first rodeo, so I'm really curious as to why the sound is so awful. It looks like this was Sparks' first time working with Liam Gilchrist, who is credited as the sound recorder and editor. What happened, Gilchrist? Don't even get me started on the stock sound usage. Besides the botched sound, the rest of the movie oozes with charm. Book of Monsters really shines when it comes to practical gore effects and comedy. People are ripped apart, heads are removed, fingers lost in a door, a torso is crushed until a head explodes. All of this is done practically with blood spurting everywhere. Kudos have to go to the practical effects team. There is some really bad CGI when the strange woman shows her bug form. It's hard to explain. It's like a really cheap bulge effect. It was totally unnecessary. Since the rest of the practical effects are done with love, I didn't care about that out of place CGI flub too much. The creature designs and costumes look decent. I didn't particularly love the Plague Doctor mask, but the bug lady and whatever the human abomination thing in the bathroom is were especially great. So was the design of the mom's monster book. The creepy old book looks bad in a lot of movies, but they did it right here. I did love the evil garden gnomes and the silly worms they burst out of quite a bit, which brings me to the comedy. Book of Monsters is genuinely funny. The guy showing up late and instantly being ripped in half is fantastic. There's another guy that has a bowl of snacks that gets knocked out of his hands twice. At one point, a monster throws a head it ripped off, and a huge missed opportunity is having the head knock the bowl out of the snack guy's hands again. Another missed opportunity involves Katy Perry. There's two copies of a friend, so to prove to Sophie that the friend is the true friend, the friend tells Sophie that she knows about her childhood crush on Katy Perry. The showdown between Sophie and the bug lady happens in Sophie's childhood bedroom. Blood ends up spraying everywhere once Sophie takes an absurdly fake looking chainsaw to the bug lady. It would have been amazing if blood sprayed all over a Katy Perry poster. There's a male stripper that constantly shrugs in Book of Monsters, which comes off way funnier than it should. It's a funny movie. Book of Monsters has the laughs, gore effects, and heart. Unfortunately, the sound hinders its true potential. I still give it a soft recommendation due to the effort put in. Just remember, the sound is the most horrifying thing in the movie. I can't overstate how bad the sound is. If you want a more complete experience, check out Deathgasm. Number 3, The Fly, 1958, directed by Kurt Newman. Francois receives a call from his sister-in-law, Hélène, who tells him she killed his brother, who's her husband, André. Eventually, she tells Francois and the police that André was working on a teleportation device. He tried it on himself, but didn't notice a fly was in the teleporter with him. They traded some parts. The fly escaped. Hélène and her son couldn't find it, so André asked Hélène to destroy him. Hélène crushes him in a hydraulic press. The police come to arrest her since there is no proof that her story is true. 
Francois and a police inspector, Charat, end up finding the fly, which now has a human face and arm. It's caught in a web about to be eaten by a spider. Charat crushes the flyman and spider with a rock. Elaine is free to go. Elaine and Charat are the killers. They both killed approximately half a human each. I decided to watch some Vincent Price classics and their remakes for this episode, starting with The Fly. I've been meaning to get around to both versions of The Fly for quite some time. Whenever people are asked what remake is better than the original, I always see people say that Cronenberg's The Fly is better, which I find hard to believe. As far as I know, Vincent Price isn't in the remake. How can a movie without Vincent Price be better than a movie with Vincent Price? Joking aside, the 1958 version of The Fly isn't an amazing movie. It's no house on Haunted Hill. That being said, I still had fun watching The Fly. It's funny that most of the actors in the movie can't pronounce any of the French names consistently. Andre was played by David Hedison, who had a very pronounced transatlantic accent. Pretty much all of the acting in The Fly is terrible, but Vincent Price is still amazing. His delivery is fantastic in everything. The only actor I couldn't stand was the son played by Charles Herbert. I also disliked him in 13 Ghosts. Kid actors were so awful back then. In The Fly, the son is annoying and grating anytime he's on screen. There is some surprising gore shown. You see Andre's body that's crushed by the press, and it's actually covered in blood. Not a lot of time is spent focusing on the body, but the tasteful bit that was shown impressed me. The design for Fly Andre is hilarious and great. The fly hand is much more convincing than the head, but I love the absurdity of the fly mask. The set design for Andre's lab is a ton of fun. I have a soft spot for the look of high-tech equipment in older films that's covered with random knobs and gauges. Pet warning, Andre tries to teleport his cat, which doesn't work out. The cat ends up stuck between dimensions? I don't think the cat is actually dead. The kitty might have been transformed into the first ethereal cat. After Andre gets mixed up with the fly, he asks Elaine to catch it. At one point, the fly is literally caught in a net. Somehow, Elaine totally biffs it and lets the fly escape. Y'all had been searching for this fly all day. Andre's life depends on you catching it. It was in the net. How did you mess this up? I praised the way Man Andre Fly Hybrid looked. How about the more buggy fly Andre? Not amazing. A David Hedison covered in awful makeup is superimposed over a fly in a web. The effect has not aged well in the slightest. It's kind of hilarious watching this effects abomination scream, Help me! over and over as a fake spider creeps closer and closer to the unfortunate flyman. The flyman was stuck in the web attached to a bench. Vincent Price sat on the bench and could clearly hear the flyman yelling for help, but totally ignored it until the kid confirmed the fly was in the spider web. Maybe Vincent was looking for the fly, thought the calls for help must be coming from some small person since flies can't talk. It still doesn't excuse his lack of aid. If a strange voice is yelling for help, you should check it out, even if you're only looking for a fly. The Fly is a silly movie. 
I wouldn't place it high on my list of Vincent Price films, but I recommend giving it a chance if you're looking for a campy old school horror movie. There are two follow-ups to this, Return of the Fly and Curse of the Fly, which maybe I'll cover someday. Vincent Price is only in the direct sequel. Number 4, House of Wax, 1953, directed by André de Toth. A wax sculptor named Gerard is betrayed by a business partner who lights Gerard's museum on fire and leaves Gerard to die. Gerard survives but is burned all over. Gerard starts killing people and steals their corpses with the help of two criminals. The corpses are turned into wax sculptures. A woman named Sue figures this out after investigating a sculpture that looks like her recently murdered friend. Gerard captures her. The police arrest one of Gerard's criminal pals who spills the beans. The police raid Gerard's new museum which ends in Gerard falling into a boiling vat of wax. Sue is saved. Gerard is the killer. Gerard's first victim is his old business partner, which wouldn't land him on the list, but the sculptor continues murdering after getting his revenge. You could say House of Wax is a slasher movie where Vincent Price is the killer. It must be amazing then, right? Nope. House of Wax is... kinda boring. All the good stuff is packed into the first 10 minutes. In the first 10 minutes, we watch Vincent Price creepily talk about all the wax figures he's created. You got John Wilkes Booth, Joan of Arc, Marie Antoinette, and more. It sounds like Gerard has a thing for the Marie Antoinette figure. This heavy helping of Vincent Price is directly followed by a scuffle between him and the arsonist business partner in the wax museum as it is burning down. The burning building fight looked incredibly dangerous and is action-packed. Chairs and punches are thrown, Joan of Arc is burned at the stake again. I was amazed to see fire used like this in a movie, only to find out that in reality, the fires quickly got out of control and due to the wax figures being hard and expensive to reproduce, filming had to continue. I thought a stuntman was used, but that's actually Vincent Price during the whole inferno. The fire singed his eyebrows. The fire wasn't the only incredibly dangerous thing Andre de Toth pushed for. He also wanted to use a real guillotine blade for no reason later in the film, which luckily a stuntman called out as too dangerous. House of Wax has some decent effects makeup. Gerard's burned face and hands look pretty good. Gerard's outfit for murdering kind of makes him look like the Hamburglar. The way he runs around in his Hamburglar attire is hilarious. When Gerard's face is smashed to reveal his real, burned face under a fake wax one, the effects of the wax breaking away looks awesome. Sure, there's no way that wax could actually cover the burned face and look normal in any regard, but that didn't really bother me too much. I can't talk about House of Wax without bringing up the random paddleball guy. For Geron's new museum's grand opening, a paddleball wielding man is used as promotion. He's a paddleball god. At one point, he catches three paddleball balls in his mouth. It's incredible. Well, incredible in how strange it is. Paddleball guy also breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the viewer. If someone told me that Paddleball Guy was in fact death himself, I'd believe him. 
He has a top hat, bow tie, mustache, and a look in his eyes that says, I'll paddle your soul like one of these here balls. Paddleball guy hasn't shown up in my nightmares yet, but I know in my heart it's only a matter of time before he appears in his full demonic form and begins smacking his balls uncomfortably close to my face. I just remember that the film was shot in 3D. I didn't watch the 3D version. Paddleball guy makes a lot more sense now. He was paddling his balls in 3D. I still think he's literally death or maybe even Satan. I can't think of any other part of the film where 3D would have improved anything. House of Wax is a remake of an earlier film titled Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933. The movie was based on a short story called The Wax Works written by Charles Belden. There's a horror movie called Waxwork from 1988 that is a lot more fun than House of Wax. Check out Waxwork instead. One of the victims in House of Wax is named Kathy. She's blonde and wears an absurdly tight corset. Seeing as she had short blonde hair in House of Wax, I did not recognize Carolyn Jones, who I know as Morticia Adams, in the 1960 Adams Family TV show. Number 5, The Fly, 1986, directed by David Cronenberg. A scientist named Seth creates a teleporter. It can only teleport inanimate objects. He meets a woman named Veronica who falls in love with him. Seth attempts to teleport a living baboon. It turns inside out. Seth figures out how to teleport the baboon's brother. Veronica's ex, Stathis, keeps bothering her so she goes to talk to him. This upsets Seth, who thinks Veronica still likes Stathis. Seth gets drunk and teleports himself. He doesn't notice a fly in the teleporter with him. Seth starts turning into a fly. Veronica is pregnant. The baby might be part fly. Seth gets worse and worse. Seth tries to merge himself with Veronica and the baby. Veronica is saved by Stathis. Veronica puts Seth out of his misery per his request. Seth is the killer. He killed the baboon's brother. First things first, if you need to test something on a living organism, why would you start with the baboon? Who gave this man a baboon? Is the fly in Bizarro Universe where baboons are cheaper than mice? Why not start things off with a plant? Who would just jump to baboons? Seth Brundle, that's who. I actually have a theory that the baboon's brother put the fly in the teleporter with Seth. If you turn on subtitles for the baboon, you see that the baboon gets Seth drunk, then goads him into entering the teleporter with the bug. Once inside, the baboon says, You killed my brother! Prepare to fly! Sure, the inside-out baboon looks amazing, and the thought of Seth thinking to himself, I shouldn't have started with the baboon, is hilarious, but why didn't he send a plant through first? Anyway, the baboon is the mastermind behind everything. It would have been hard for Seth to explain why he was naked holding a baboon if Veronica popped back in to see him right after the experiment was completed. If there's one thing you can expect from David Cronenberg, it's amazing practical effects. He has a knack for putting together the best effects teams. The Fly is no exception. The effects work is impeccable. Kudos to Chris Wallace Inc. 
From the gore of the Inside Out Baboon, a wrist broken in an arm wrestling contest, to Seth's gross transformation into a fly, which includes fingernail removal, teeth falling out, and a fly body bursting out of human skin, everything looks incredible. I was in awe during the disgusting big fly reveal. Amazing Academy Award winning work. Veronica must really love Seth. She barely reacts to seeing Seth's horrifying transformation. At one point, Seth throws up some goo and looks like he has a real bad case of the plague. Seconds after Seth Ralphs, Veronica goes in for a consoling hug. If I ever look like he does and have throw up all over me, I completely understand if no one wants to hug me. One thing I really like about this movie is Seth as a character. In a movie where a character turns into a human-insect abomination, you'd probably expect them to be a straight-up, creepy, violent villain. He eventually becomes creepy and violent and yaks up acid onto Stathis, which melts his hand and foot, but I wouldn't even call Seth the antagonist for most of the film. When Seth Brundle becomes the self-proclaimed Brundlefly, He's surprisingly optimistic about becoming something that has never existed. Brundlefly is my spirit animal. Sure, he goes off the deep end and tries to fuse himself with Veronica and his unborn child, but up until this point, you are still rooting for him. Speaking of Veronica's unborn child, we're shown a scene where David Cronenberg is delivering her baby. It's absolutely ridiculous. The director delivers a giant maggot baby. This was obviously a nightmare. Veronica must have been like, I had the weirdest nightmare. David Cronenberg delivered a maggot baby that was inside of me. I like the acting from everyone, but expected some more horrified reactions to Brundlefly. The score is a little cheesy in some parts, and there is one out of place fade to black that you'd expect to see in a made-for-TV movie right before a commercial, but everything else is amazing. Jeff Goldblum won my heart early in the movie. He says, I have come here to say one magic word to you. Cheeseburger. The fastest way to this boy's good side is a cheeseburger. The Fly is a must watch. You should definitely check this out if you haven't seen it. Number 6, House of Wax, 2005, directed by Jaime Coye Serra. A group of friends tried to go to a football game. Among them are a set of twins, Carly and Nick. The group decides to camp out since they've been driving all day. Nick throws a bottle at a tow truck that creeps on them. Someone cuts a belt on one of the cars while the friends are sleeping. There's a town nearby which includes a house of wax that is completely made of wax. Carly goes to the town with her boyfriend. They're given a ride by a man whose job is to drive roadkill to a pit. The couple meet Bo, who ends up attacking them. Bo's brother Vincent turns the boyfriend into a living wax man. Everyone in the friend group besides the twins dies. It's revealed that all the inhabitants in the town were living people that were turned into wax figures. The twins end up in the house of wax and escape as it melts down. Bo and Vincent die in the house. The police show up and reveal there is a third brother the roadkill driver. The brothers, Bo, Vincent, and the roadkill driver are the killers. I remember seeing advertisements for House of Wax. It had the gimmick, Watch Paris Hilton Die. 
Paris Hilton has fallen out of the celebrity hate meta. Most people have probably forgotten all about her or have barely any opinion of her at this point. She was the OG Kim Kardashian. Anyway, let's get the acting out of the way. The acting in House of Wax is terrible from everyone except the villains and twins. That's not to say that the villains or twins do a fantastic job, but Alicia Cuthbert, Chad Michael Murray, and Brian Van Holt do well enough. Everyone else is awful. Paris Hilton can't even act like she's running for her life. Jared Padalecki pretends he's a 12-year-old boy. Robert Richard is there, but all he does is remind you Cousin Skeeter existed. Remember that show where there was a puppet family member? A majority of the acting is bad. That being said, I kinda loved House of Wax. Sure, the songs picked for the movie include new metal and industrial. They don't ever fit what's going on screen. The camera work with the friend group in the first 15 minutes is strangely terrible, and the random CGI used on Vincent, the brother who wears a mask throughout most of the movie, is bad and out of place. But I still dug this movie. Why? The production design is godlike. The set is stunning. The whole town was created for the movie, and it's such a neat and unique place. I wish I could visit that set. There is a great looking church, a gas station, and houses. Then there's the House of Wax. A house made entirely of wax. It's one of the best locations I've ever seen in a film. The town was based on an actual place, Asmara, which is the most populous city of Eritrea. Asmara has a ton of art deco architecture. Barring the camping scenes with the friends, the cinematography is actually good. There is a lot of interesting angles and camera movement. House of Wax doesn't really have much to do with the original. This is more of a remake of Tourist Trap than the House of Wax that starred Vincent Price. Sure, both movies have a wax sculptor as a killer who turns people into wax figures, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. I mean, there's also a character named Vincent as a callback. The gore in the remake of House of Wax is practical and fantastic. An Achilles tendon is snipped. A fingertip is also snipped, which, yeesh. A face is bashed in with a bat. Wax flesh is peeled off a face, while the owner, who can't move, is internally screaming in pain. There is a decapitation. A pole is sent flying through a head. A roadkill pit. And multiple brutal knife kills. All of the gore looks great. Besides amazing set and gore design, House of Wax is filled with dumb stuff too. There are so many points in the movie where a normal person would bail. Creepy tow truck driver pulls up to your campsite. Time to move camp. Weird roadkill piling redneck shows up. Time to bail. Your car is not worth staying in this situation. You go with some random dude to his house, which is obviously the house of a serial killer? I should go. The boyfriend character, who's named Wade, is an obnoxious moron who destroys other people's property and blames his girlfriend for other people finding her attractive. He's a child. Seeing him painfully turned into wax and have his face peeled off is great. I hated him way more than Paris Hilton. He finds the wax stuff fascinating, then shows zero respect towards it. 
The idea of being encased in wax while you're still alive is terrifying. Sure, you'd probably die from shock, but Wade was injected with something that might have numbed the pain enough to make it possible. There are a lot of Paris Hilton references that were fun and not overbearing. She has the pole thrown through her head, which is an awesome kill. There's a deleted intro kill where a girl who's waiting for a tow truck is grabbed by the neck and thrown face first through her car windshield. It should have stayed in. You still see her body being turned into wax. At one point, Nick lands two crossbow shots on Bo. Of course, Nick and Carly don't make sure Bo's actually been killed. He ends up still being alive and completely forgets about the crossbow wounds during one of the dumbest fight scenes I've ever seen. Bo had a shotgun which Nick grabbed after knocking Bo out the first time. Carly throws it away since there aren't any more shells. Carly, a gun doesn't have to be loaded. If the opposition doesn't know it's empty, it can still be useful. At one point, Carly had her mouth super glued shut. She's underground by a grate where Nick and Bo are talking above. Even if your mouth was shut, you'd still be able to make enough noise to be heard. So it was a little hard to suspend my disbelief during that scene. The Waxy Boys killed so many people. All the occupants in the town were people who were murdered then turned into wax figures. It's insane. Seeing the human gore exposed when the figures were broken was great. When the house of wax is melting and you see the figures melt to reveal skeletons, it's awesome. And, come to think of it, is real similar to the scene in Only Lovers Left Alive. The house melting is super neat in House of Wax. Even though I complained about a bunch of silly stuff, this movie was a fantastic time. The production design, kills, and gore carry the movie. If the negative stigma around Paris Hilton being in this movie turned you off, it's time to watch House of Wax. It's one of the most entertaining slashers I've seen in quite some time. Number 7. Silly Sabrina I finished watching the second season of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and it was mostly enjoyable. I'd say it's much better than the first season. There are going to be spoilers galore in this section, so if you care to avoid them, there's your warning. There's one thing I forgot to mention regarding the first episode. Sabrina wanted to be top boy. To be top boy, candidates must compete against each other. There's a trivia round, and Sabrina decides to cheat. Her opponent doesn't cheat at all. Sabrina wanted to prove that the best person should be able to be top boy regardless of gender, but all she does is show the world she's the top cheater. Cheating does not a top boy make. I hate Sabrina as a character. She's selfish and dangerously impulsive. At one point, Sabrina gets new powers. She basically becomes the Ultra Instinct Sabrina I've been joking about. After gaining the new powers, she learns that she's part of a prophecy. She's the herald of hell who will bring upon the apocalypse. After learning this, she decides she needs to get rid of her powers. She doesn't know anything about her role in the apocalypse, but she's told by Madam Satan, aka Lilith, who's been disguised as one of Sabrina's old teachers since the first season, that Sabrina can transfer her powers into a mandrake. 
Sabrina then needs to kill the Mandrake or it'll just be a powerful copy of her. Sabrina learns about this Mandrake spell, promises her boyfriend she won't do it, and then instantly does it right after he leaves her house. What? The new boyfriend, Nick Scratch, left to try and figure out some stuff about the prophecy. Why would you not wait at least a couple days and get advice from your aunts? Sabrina doesn't even tell her aunts about the prophecy or ask for their help at all. Of course this dumb Mandrake plan backfires. Sabrina makes an evil Mandrake version of herself. Evil Sabrina is my favorite character. She was pure and only wanted some friends. Real Sabrina couldn't let something I love live, so she murders evil Sabrina in a pistol duel. Since real Sabrina is a scumbag cheater, she shoots evil Sabrina in the back before they both finish walking 10 paces. Sabrina's like, I'm not evil, I just cheat, shoot people in the back, and act completely selfish all the time. Damn you real Sabrina. Satan ends up showing up in his angelic form. He's Sabrina's dad. Yep, Star Wars. He says Sabrina is going to be queen. You'd think she'd be the princess since Satan is her dad. Anyway, Sabrina shows up to her Queen of Hell coronation and does an awful musical number. This is a hell party, Sabrina. Not some lame high school musical. If I was Satan, I would have told her I changed my mind and handed the crown over to Lilith after that embarrassing performance. Anyway, the day is saved, obviously. It's incredibly anticlimactic. Sabrina and friends trap Satan inside Nick's scratch. Nick is now a prison. I heard in the next season he writes a book called The Man Inside Me. Madam Satan, a.k.a. Lilith, is the new ruler of hell and takes Nick to the underworld with her to make sure Satan doesn't escape his new boy prison. At the very end of the season, Sabrina gathers her gaggle of normie friends and tells them she has a plan for an adventure. The plan is to rescue her boyfriend. Um, what? Excuse me? Sabrina, you selfish brat. Nick knew the risks of becoming Satan's flesh prison. If you rescue him, there is a 100% chance that Satan will end up running amok again. Sabrina is stupidly selfish. Since evil Sabrina is dead and Hilda keeps murdering people, Hilda joins Zelda on my favorite living characters list. You'd be there too, evil Sabrina, if you were still living. For a second, Zelda was a brainwashed slave, but she's back to her badass self and has proclaimed herself the new High Priestess. It looks like Zelda's going to be a Charles Xavier figure to a new witch school, since Father Blackwood tried to poison everyone like some kind of cult leader before disappearing. Looks like the normie friends are going to be front and center in the next season. What is this? Some type of Scooby gang? At one point, the normie trio stops the gates of hell from opening. Roz sees some rune-like symbols and shows them to Harvey through a mind link. He then starts drawing the runes which are scattered in front of the gates to stop them from opening. Before the mind link, Roz tells Harvey to clear his mind, which is luckily always clear. Wait a minute. 
Harvey and Sabrina are both complete morons. They are destined to end up together. Here's hoping Sabrina's selfishness grievously bites her in the ass next season. Episode 43 of Blank is the Killer is now dead. I had a ton of fun watching Vincent Price movies and their remakes. So much fun, in fact, that I plan on watching the House on Haunted Hill remake for next episode. Chris Kattan is in it. I had been avoiding it because I thought Vince Vaughn was in it. He's only in the Psycho remake, which I'll never see. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Blank is the Killer, or any episode, leave your boy a rating on iTunes, please. Big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. Go check out other podcasts on the network, like Director Showdown. Next episode of Blank is the Killer will be up on May 5th. Until then, make sure to avoid any obvious serial killers who may or may not turn your corpse into a wax figure.